0: I just wished that dance felt more in conversation with life and like with people outside of the dance world and maybe with the art world for sure, at least. Hello
1: and welcome to the Terpsichory podcast. My name is Emily May. I'm a British born dance writer and critic and I've been based in Berlin, Germany since 2018. Named after the Greek goddess of dance and chorus also an allusion to historian Sally Baines's seminal book on postmodern dance, Tepsikori and Sneakers, Tepsikori celebrates female dancers, choreographers and bodies in motion by interviewing leading women from the dance industry. For episode 21, I'm delighted to welcome US-based choreographer Andrea Miller to the podcast to discuss her life, career and inspirations. Trained at Juilliard in New York City, Andrea Miller is a choreographer, creative director and the founder of the internationally renowned multidisciplinary organisation Galim. A creator and collaborator for dance, film, fashion and the visual arts, Miller is known for her exploration of the essential elements of human behaviour and the alchemy of human expression through the medium of movement and performance. Miller is a Guggenheim, Sadler's Wells, New York City Centre and Princess Grace Fellow and was featured in Forbes as an entrepreneur and leader in the dance World. She's the first choreographer to be named artist in residence at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, creating two large scale works for the Temple of Danger and the full fifth floor of the Met Brewer. As well as creating work for her own company, Miller has been commissioned by the likes of New York City Ballet, Martha Graham Dance Company, Rumbaird 2, and Ailey 2, presenting her works in world renowned venues including the Lincoln Center, the Joyce, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, the Royal Albert Hall. London's Royal Opera House and Theatre House Stuttgart. This September, she presented Les Nos Ascent to Days at London's Sadler's Wells. Created for English National Ballet, the piece is her reimagining of the famous Stravinsky score, originally choreographed by the overlooked Russian dance pioneer Bronislava Nijinska. For the piece, she collaborated with the late, great British sculptor Fyla de Barlow on set design. Holland Park Opera also performed the music live on stage. On Friday, the 24th of November, Miller will be returning to London to restate Excerpts of Les Nos Ascend Days at the Victoria and Albert Museum as part of their dance focused VA Friday Late event. ENB had been included in line with the museum's Chanel Fashion Manifesto exhibition to reflect the link between Chanel dance and the fact she once designed costumes for the Ballet Russe, the revolutionary Russian ballet company of which Nijinska and Stravinsky were a part. Ahead of the performance, I couldn't wait to talk to Miller about breaking out of the concert dance bubble to present work in non traditional performance spaces. Her collaborations with visual art organizations, working with de Barlo and her plans for the future of her company who are fast approaching their 20th anniversary.
2: So hi Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today on the Terpsichore podcast.
0: How are you doing and where are you speaking to us from? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm Uh, speaking to you from uh, Brantford, Connecticut, which is just outside of New Haven. And I live here, I moved here in the pandemic after a long, long time living in New York City.
2: Amazing. And as we were just talking about before we started recording, you'll be heading over to the UK again soon to restage Les Nos Ascent Todays for EMB. But before we get to that, I was wondering if you could tell me or if you can remember what some of your first experiences with dance were and how you first became interested in it as an art form.
0: As a student or as a more professionally driven person?
2: I think as a student, just kind of as a pure
0: joy first. I started taking class very young. I think I was three. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I feel really lucky, actually, about the training that I got at an an early young age because I think creativity was actually more of the mission than getting us sort of experts in any one style of dance or language. So we made the movements. We sometimes even made the music. We painted the murals that would be in the background. We danced with fabric and, you know, it just was extremely creative environment. And I think from then on it captured my feeling that the studio was a place of like infinite discovery. And also just being physical. I was a very physical kid. Yeah, it was just an early on love affair. And I think I've always tried to keep that kind of spirit of what the studio can be even to this day.
2: And then kind of coming back to what you asked me about whether I meant student or earlier than that, when did that kind of love affair, or when did you realize this love affair could be something that you took professionally
0: or that you wanted to pursue career-wise? Well, we moved to Connecticut when I was about nine years old, and I started training with um, a woman named Ernestine Stodell. She was 80 years old. She was a dancer with a pioneer of modern dance, Doris Humphrey. And I learned through her what even a choreographer is. We basically just learned Doris Humphrey's uh, technique and her repertory. And I understood that this was a profession and it was a creative pursuit of a a lifetime of this one artist. And I think around 11, I was like, I want to be the next Doris Humphrey. (laughs) I want to be a choreographer. Because I think in that studio also, we weren't just learning, you know, technically how to dance or deliver performance, but we were learning a lot about composition and even movement theory. Yeah, that fascinated me. I think around 11, I I set my dreams on dancing professionally, but even more so choreographing.
2: You mentioned Doris Humphrey there. I was wondering, are there any key elements of Doris Humphrey's approach or things that you learned about her approach to movement that particularly captured your imagination or um, you've brought forward with you since then?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think it's in everybody's profession that you have a woman as a role model. That was wonderful to see, I think. I learned from her that dance was a humanitarian and civic kind of engagement. And she was able to figure out how to capture the moment of social... The social climate and the political climate that she was in and and capture it and create movement studies that were either explicitly about that or at least it felt that they were in conversation with it even if it wasn't explicit and it was more abstract so that was really interesting to know that that in a gesture or a phrase of movement or even just in your embodiment you can distill your experience of the time that you're in or the experience that you're having as an individual or collectively. And then her movement theory is about fall and recovery, that everything kind of falls and recovers. And I, I don't necessarily feel like I, I break down my movement like that, but I like the idea that there is a principle or a value system that a choreographer can identify is kind of the foundation of where they're creating from or moving from, and I think I've tried to understand what's mine, knowing that that was so influential for her and I could see it in every single beat of every single movement. What is my, what is gonna be my, you know, method? And that has helped me, like, focus, I think, my work towards a practice or towards a value system, And, and and I really, really, I value that lesson deeply.
2: I love how you mentioned before that you, from such a young age, were really interested in choreography specifically, not just performing. In spite of this, you still trained very intensively as a dancer as well and performed, and I know you attended Juilliard. Could you tell me a bit about your training there and what some of the key things you learned there were that have continued to impact you today?
0: Um, Juilliard was really Perfect for me. It was very, very challenging. It was extremely difficult because I came from almost an entirely modern dance background and not just modern dance. I mean like 1930s to 1950s modern dance, not even like competition modern dance or whatever. I had very little ballet. And at the time the school was really focused on like the dream was sending your kids to NDT or contemporary ballet was sort of the aesthetic you know pinnacle Though it was challenging because I didn't really fit in but I think at the same time I was able to balance out the weaknesses that I had from just lack of experience and lack of exposure in certain parts of dance and I witnessed so much like excellence in my classmates and as creatives as performers and it just made me like really 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 like appreciate the field but it was a lot of like a lot of tears also at Juilliard at the time that I was there people who wanted to choreograph were considered people who couldn't dance so it was like this bizarre hierarchy I really didn't ascribe to that I, I felt like I wanted to make dances that showed that being a phenomenal dancer was actually part like deeply part of being a choreographer not necessarily because of me as my dancing but at least like working with the dancers I was working with and I think I've continued to try to like fight that even though it's not even a reality in my world anymore but it was sincerely a a cleared culture there and I think yeah Julia is not for everyone it was it was good for me um because I, I just needed to get my butt in shape (laughs) Mm.
2: but I find it really interesting that you say you came from this small kind of like pure contemporary modern dance world and then went and did all this ballet because I feel like my my experience with dance and then I think it's quite typical of other people I know as well is that you kind of you do your ballet and your jazz first and then maybe you feel you don't get quite fit in. And then I think I was like 11 or 12 and it was like Harry Potter, you know, but no, you're a contemporary dance. Have you heard of this magical world of contemporary dance? And it's very different. So it's so amazing that that kind of was available to you or you were aware of this magical world of contemporary and modern dance from a younger age.
0: Yeah, it was completely crazy. My studio was just three people and the two other people were twins and it was tiny and my teacher she was from that time where modern dancers didn't even talk to other modern dancers like if you were a gram dancer you didn't like engage with the Humphrey dancers so I would have to tell her that I had like a dentist appointment if I was like trying to do the nutcracker you know I'd like trying to do something else that was going to corrupt my Humphrey body (laughs) to going to some place where there was like people using pop music and text. And it was just, it was very wild. And yeah, very interesting transition.
2: Mm-hmm. So after Juilliard, I know you went to work with Batsheva. When did you kind of discover Batshaver, this kind of Gaga movement style and think this is what I would really like to have experience in?
0: So Ohad came, Ohad came to Juilliard. And actually the first time he came, he needed a few dancers for a show he was doing with his company. And so he did an audition and he chose five of us and I was part of that group. And then he came back to Juilliard to set a piece and then I was part of that process. And so I got my first exposure to him through those Juilliard projects. I would say that it's very different in the result but there was something very similar about the way I worked in Humphrey-Weidman, because um, Charles Weidman is also part of Doris Humphrey's sort of sphere, and Ohad, which was that they both used language as one of the main access points to influence the way the body would move. So, I, of course, there's movements that you know you learn in Humphrey, but so much was about the language and the poetry and like the behavior that you are thinking about. Well, when Ohad came and he was using language in that way, it really brought back this like core memory of how I really liked to to train, which was through the imagination and through embodiment of ideas or embodiment of feelings that was super familiar to me. But I think what He helped me like unleash more, which I already knew that I had in me, but I just needed more permission was to be, to be my animal. And I think that's maybe why I was able to be in in those processes at Juilliard because I found out that's like definitely who I am as a mover. You attract, I, I, dancers I look for, I think they're, maybe we attract, are attracted towards each other or, you know as as movers because you share like an instinct around movement and that's definitely something that I had in me that matched with with I think what's going on with Bacheva
2: and how long were you in the company again how long were you performing with them
0: two years full I think with them it was
2: yeah it was wild do you have any stand-up performances you were part of or creation processes that kind of still stick with you
0: Oh, definitely one of my biggest influences was Sharona Yale. taking class with her. She wasn't teaching class, but like watching her take class was amazing because a lot of what classes like there is more about like artistically how you're interpreting the ideas and just seeing how she could stretch way past what I thought was being asked into such a crazy realm was so exciting. So taking class with her, I think, was probably one of my favorite parts of my time there. And then she created a work. It was, you know, I don't know, I think maybe like eight of us. And I was part of that process. And yeah, I I just absolutely loved it. One thing I didn't note about Juilliard is, is that my entire time while I was there, we at no time were given a female choreographer for any of our spring concerts winter concert never did I work with a female choreographer and honestly I didn't even think twice about it which is so depressing because it just was like yeah I didn't I mean that's just what it is and then I think working with Sharon like in in her femininity and her sensuality and all of that it was a gift
2: do you know if that's changed much at Juilliard now, if they, they work with more female choreographers? Have you worked with them, actually?
0: Have you gone back? Twice to new works for them, as well as set, setting an older work. The most recent one, which was in 2019 that I made um, has now become part of like my company's rep, which we do all the time and I love it very much.
2: That feels like a really great transition to talk about your company and transitioning more into choreography. So you moved back to the States to found Galim in 2007, I believe, and I wanted to ask what kind of prompted you to make that move back and also to decide to transition more from performing into Creating your own choreography for your own company.
0: I mean, honestly, I think even dancing when I was at Bacheva, even and dancing for other companies, like as a, I, w- I was never really feeling like I was there as a dancer. I was like there, preparing myself to choreograph and have a other company, and it was sort of just my own, like university about like, what, how would I go about doing this? And the only way I could find that out was maybe by dancing other places so i always knew that that was a goal but i just didn't know when it would happen and at the time my stepfather passed away and my mom was not doing so well so i came back to be in new york for a while and just you know take some time and it was then that i started choreographing on a small group of friends um i met and an incredible dancer who became sort of like a bosom friend and c- collaborator. I mean, muse. I don't know if that's the right word anymore, but she was just like the most inspiring person. And we built Kaleem together in many ways. And so it just ended up happening because of meeting her and following the momentum of our creativity.
2: And did you have, when you um, started building Galim, did you have kind of like in a more abstract way, but kind of some manifesto in mind or things that you really wanted to achieve or kind of aesthetics or principles that you felt were really going to drive it? Or was it more a process of discovery along the way?
0: I definitely had some conventions of concert dance that I felt like I had to sort of achieve as a baseline, which was like tour you know, make a company in which we could tour, that just seems like what you do. And and in many ways it is, it's really, a, it is a big part of what it, so setting up an administration and an organization in a way where we have the ability to make work and tour it was kind of like the first steps for me in a more spiritual capacity. And I think this then influenced the more practical things I felt like always that dance, we were just making for dancers. So like everybody in the audience was a dancer or like danced in college and, you know, now like doing marketing or whatever. It unsettled me because I just felt like it's an insular language with like inside jokes, <laughs> like you had to be there kind of things. And I felt that bubble a little bit in most of the companies that I was in, that it just felt like this bubble of dance I just wished that dance felt like more in conversation with, with life and like with people outside of the dance world and maybe with the art world, for sure, at least. So I think early on, I set out to choreograph for, like, the boyfriend that got dragged to the show who didn't want to be there and who didn't understand anything about dance. And, like, how would I talk to that person? So that was, like, always there. And then also, like, started to creep in, why are we just touring in these, like, theaters and going to all these universities and, and some amazing theaters, a lot of universities, some really stinky theaters. If, if I'm trying to like choreograph for this dragged along boyfriend, I got to go to places where they are, but it's not just the theaters. I want to be in museums. I want to be in a, in a, in Grand Central Station. I want to be in the park. I want to be in film. I want to be in fashion. And so I think that that kind of early on was one of the very core you know, questions that was trying to be answered with this dance is like, is this relevant beyond our dance community? And if it can be, how, how do we achieve that?
2: That's an amazing lead in because my next question uh, was about your close collaboration with the visual arts. And that's something I'm really interested in into as a writer and in my practice looking at um, connections between the dance world and visual art world um, so it was very excited to read about how you're a fellow at the Guggenheim and also the first ever choreographer to be named artist in residence at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and just for our listeners who might not know you created two large-scale works for the Temple of Danger and the full fifth floor of the Met Brewer. Uh, and you've also collaborated with and created works for the Lincoln Center, Art Basel, and Freeze, to name a very few. You're saying about wanting to expand it into different areas. Why was the visual art world that kind, of, one of those key areas for you, or what is it that you enjoy about working in these spaces, particularly outside of the proscenium arch stage?
0: Before my dance schedule was getting too heavy as a young person and I had to just decide to only do dance, I was doing painting and working with clay. And then at some point, it was like you can only do one because it's too many classes, too much. And so visual art, painting especially, was another direction that was po- like I was considering as a, as a young person. It was an area and a language that I had had some, some personal experience with, but even more so to me, visual art has been like like church. <laughs> I guess maybe, maybe you feel that way about writing. It heals me. It like challenges me in the ways I wanna be challenged. It expands my mind. It just, to me, it's the most close to like a transcendent experience other than dance that I, that I know. And so even early on, before I was collaborating with people in visual art, visual art was always inside of the process. I was either referencing painters or sculptors or mixed media artists or whatever, bringing that into the studio, into the creative process. So it's just always been in the conversation. And then when I just had the courage to be like, all right, like that's part of my dream, let's just do it and let's break this convention about what dance and where it belongs the first place i w- i would i felt comfortable going to was the visual art world and thankfully it's been a really really beautiful dialogue and interaction and honestly i just want to go way further than than i've done already i really really believe that there's something that embodiment and and the visual art can continue to do and get closer in, in our aspirations together.
2: One thing that I found really interesting with your work, it seems that you do kind of break down this barrier more. So I feel like in Europe there's, we have dancers who work in the, or choreographers who work in the visual art space, but then they kind of exclusively work in visual art and then end up not doing so much work on a proscenium art stage or in concert dance. Or you have people who work on the proscenium art stage and would never like go elsewhere, whereas you seem to maintain the two streams alongside each other in a way that I haven't really seen before.
0: I think that that goes back to where we were talking about with um, Doris and her Fallen Recovery movement theory, like practice. I think that when you have like a foundation on where you create from, that isn't necessarily tied to movement as your medium, but it's about expression, believing that there's a wisdom inside of art and inside of performance and inside of you know this this kind of like i don't know it's just like this sacred fire then it's 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 easy to feel like you can move from from space to space because that's consistent like it's not like all of a sudden you have to become a performance artist and all of a sudden you have to become a ballet person and become no you just go as yourself with you and these things are going to remain constant and you're going to have to learn new things and you're going to have to appreciate that you're you're to some degree an outsider and you've got to listen and you've got to learn but it doesn't mean that you can't participate you know, it just doesn't. I just don't believe you, you. can't. I remember when I went to. I think I was in my twenties, and I went to like impulse stands. I was. I was like, I needed housing, and I found some place to stay. And this guy was from Vienna. I told him I was in my twenties. I was like, Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've been dancing, but really, I'm at this point. I feel like I'm more of a choreographer. And he was like, Oh, you Americans. You think that you can, like, you know, pick up a camera and you're a filmmaker, or you pick up a brush and you're a painter. Like, here, you have to study that for 10 years before you'd even have the guts to say that you're a choreographer. And I was like, all right, like, see you in 10 years. I'm going to be choreographing. Like, <laughs> I, was like I, I, I appreciate that, and that there's legacy and there's wisdom, there's so much history in there, and, and it does. I'm not trying to belittle what it is to master something, but I do think that if you're, if you're a mixed media artist, which I do see myself as, then you can't, you just, you can't hold that, that kind of limitation on yourself. I really like this sentiment of yeah, having to go and
2: be, be yourself and just come as you are, but I'm also interested about to what extent do you feel your choreographic process differs when you're creating something from scratch for a museum environment, for example, at the Met, um, as opposed to a prosiemen art stage, do you approach the kind of creation and rehearsal and um, devising process differently?
0: The work will throw in your face what you don't know. It'll just tell you flat out, like, you don't, you do not understand how big this Temple of dender is. You clearly cannot comprehend it yet, you know? So I think you definitely going going into these creative processes, you have to trust that you're not starting from a, like a deficit, like I, I don't know anything, I can't do this, I've never done this before. Like you come in with energy, with ideas, with an intention, But you really have to be in a huge listening space because the point is to be responsive and like interact with that space and not just like I'm an apple, put the apple there and leave. I mean, you can do that. Cunningham would probably make maybe the same piece he would in front of the Temple of Dender as he would on stage. And like, I would like, I'd be in love with it because I love everything he did. So... Maybe I'm simplifying, but I'm not like that. I definitely want to be shaped by my experiences in in creative process. I want it to change me. I want to feel that I learned something, that I became vulnerable in a certain space, and I was able to kind of at least have the courage to try and figure it out so yes when I work in a creative process especially that's not on stage it's really important to spend a lot of time in the site where you're going to be watch how people when there isn't any dancing happening there interact with the space how people move what the light is what is the feeling of time and how it passes. the time passes in that space in some ways I try to feel like wherever I'm going already has a soul. And I would be best to try to like, understand what that frequency is, what that, what that soul is. And it's not like we can't change together or make something new or different. I don't have to completely put myself in a pretzel in order to fit into this space, but I should be noticing what it's already saying on its own. Through what you said, it
2: kind of made me think of like from from what I do in terms of writing. It's very, sounds a lot like interviewing. Like obviously, you, you come with your own questions or your own interests and what you want to find out. But then you also can't stick to your bullet point script. Uh, you have to listen to what the, the other person's saying, and then that takes it in maybe in a different direction than you thought. But you can also direct it another way if you want. And it's, yeah, like this conversation.
0: Absolutely.
2: It's the same. Well, thank you so much for that. That's really amazing. I wanted to move back onto the proscenium art stage for a bit to talk specifically about Les Nos Ascented Days, which you created for English National Ballet this year. And I was very excited to see it in London. So, yeah, as I said, it was created for an ENB and it's a reinterpretation of Stravinsky's Le Nos Score, which was originally choreographed by a choreographic Russian trailblazer I've written here, uh, Bronislava Nijinska. How did this project first come up um, at EMB? And yeah, how did it the idea first come that you would create a reimagining of this iconic score? And what excited you about the idea?
0: This was, well, one of the biggest challenges of my life, I think creatively, I could say. The score is very complicated. It's very difficult. When I first heard it, I was like, this does not because i'm always thinking about the boyfriend that gets dragged along like this boyfriend's gonna hate this like music i appreciate it i feel excited by it in many ways but i just it just doesn't have the sound vibe that i think a lot of you know young people are like you know hanging out with and so I was just like, how are we going to make this something we wanna dig into? Like we all wanna hear and we wanna feel it. Also, it has a lot of baggage. One thing that's really nice about being a choreographer is like you make something where nothing was. Now all of a sudden you're making something that has a history, it has this other versions of it, and of course Jinska's being the like the original and most significant one. Like I'm not familiar with that. I've never done anything that had existing baggage, beautiful baggage, heritage and legacy. But it just it still comes with its with that. Also figuring out how how was I going to be among these other artists that have already said something about this work and what it means and what it says and what it looks like was also another part of it. And then of course, although I've choreographed with ballet companies, it's just still still a a challenge and it's primarily because of the schedule because you have three hour rehearsals and I'm used to full day six hour rehearsals. And so I'm really very uncomfortable with that sort of setup. So there's just like a bunch of stuff that made it look terrifying. In addition, I only had the piano version, four piano version, and we knew that we would be performing to orchestral version, but we wouldn't be able to listen to the orchestral version until like the week before the show. So, Just feeling like what I'm hearing now is not what I'm going to hear then was also terrifying. And then on top of that, a story is about a wedding. Okay, so am I going to do a normative wedding between a man and a woman? I'm really not that interested in a wedding story. I'm not. It's not an area that, especially a normative one, I'm also straight, so what am I going to now become the storyteller of a same-gender same-sex wedding as a straight female like that didn't feel appropriate either ultimately i just could not find the instinct to choreograph about a wedding so i had to deal with that for quite a long time almost like half a year i couldn't figure out how to make a wedding interesting to me choreographically even if there was other subtexts around brutality or the communal behavior that's brutal. You know, there's other subjects, but ultimately it's a wedding. So when I read that, that Nijinska said that she didn't even listen to Stravinsky's libretto, she paid it no mind because it was like a romantic wedding. And she was not going to be doing a romantic wedding, she had a completely different vision for it. I said, hey, well, if she's not listening to the libretto, I don't necessarily need to listen to this narrative. I can listen to this music and hear it as a score and free it from the wedding and just listen to it and see what happens, see what comes of it. And honestly, I felt, and this is actually where Nijinska took it also, is that it was felt like another sacrifice. It felt something very brutal. It felt like something, this music machine was forcing something very painful into the world, which I do think what, that, what her wedding is, ultimately. And, and then when I started thinking about that, and I learned that English National Ballet has the rights to Pina Bausch's Rite of Spring for like another year, just out of like a fun thought, I was like, could you imagine if this went back to back with Pina's? Like, wouldn't that be an interesting program? following that fun ridiculous thought i was like what if it was like the sequel you know And we just took off from where the chosen one just died what would happen and all of a sudden that became so exciting to me to be like holy shit there's actually a lot to unpack about that piece i've always thought when i i don't know if you've seen it very much but i always think it ends very abruptly like she dies and it's over it's as a viewer, after like 45 minutes of going through this ritual, I find it not a, not a flaw to Pina, but I find the piece ends extremely abruptly. And so I felt like there's a lot of debris that is, is in the space now. The community, the family members, the religious people who have just enforced this or influenced this sacrifice, also, why did they do it? Did they do it because they wanted to get something out of it? Do they get what they wanted out of it? What if they don't get what they want out of it? So all these like amazing, cool questions came up that I felt, yeah, I, I, I see now my body beginning to move on, on, these, on these themes around sacrifice, around violence that you know society imparts on its own members' faith and just other subjects.
2: Yeah, amazing. You said right at the beginning, I think, about being pulled into dance because of also seeing how it can represent the kind of a spirit of the time or politics or kind of societal issues. Within these questions that you became excited about answering or looking at and contemplating in Les Nos, were there specific kind of contemporary issues or things that came into those discussions or that you felt you were trying to capture in the performance?
0: While Doris approached things and I think of her, in in her moment of her time and made dances about her time, I feel that even though I'm noticing the things that are happening in my time and they're definitely influencing me, I always have the instinct to bring movement back to something that feels more ancient and more elemental and less circumstantial of this moment. Like this is what's happening now and while those things were on my mind, of course, I was just going always back to what is human behavior. What are our instincts around the way we treat each other, the way we treat individuals as a group versus one on one, or how we behave alone with things that we're unsettled with by versus how we behave when we're amongst a mass. I always kind of like bring it back to more of elemental things. But yes, of course, our times are very disturbing and it's impossible that they don't find their way into the studio.
2: I love the fact that you said ancient, because I think in my review, I kept mentioning that it had this kind of like the piece had for me quite like a Hellenic or Greek tragedy feel, also aided by the fact I felt like there was some kind of Martha Graham-esque contractions and moments that obviously lend themselves so well to sacrifice as a theme. Because you've been commissioned by Martha Graham Company as well, do you find Martha Graham kind of works her way in as an influence on your work, generally, but also in reference to this piece?
0: I think Graham, even more than Humphrey, has like this primordial, mythological, mystical relationship to movement, which I think she inherited from Rue St. Denis and Ted Shawn. I do feel more akin to that than the sort of humanist naturalist of Doris Humphrey. And like, she wants to do movements that a pedestrian could do. Because of me being connected to an animal as a mover, I move and I create from this instinct that is old and old, as old as instinct as I can get myself to connect with. When that happens, I feel a certainty in my movement, but yes, there was even the choir. It did have that sort of Hellenic Greek tragedy vibe. I, I wanted all of the choir, their faces to be all at the same level. and so we took whatever person was the tallest person and that person stood on the floor and then everybody else had a little bit of a box that made their faces line up with that person's face. And so they felt kind of ominous and overseeing the toiling, like as if they were like on Mount Olympus and then everybody else is in the mud and the muck of this, of this situation. Yeah, I think there was a mm-hmm. lot of like Antigone that was discussed but Graham exactly I don't know I, I don't think it's necessarily the technique but it's more that like mystical woman that I really relate to
2: it's still on the mm-hmm. Greek theme as well it was definitely for me, as you said, the kind of Greek chorus at the back of the stage, and also cause they're in black with the very kind of like stark white faces, it's very dramatic. But then also because of the amphitheatre-like set of Phila that looked very much like kind of like a Greek amphitheatre to me. I'm also very like prone to looking for these things because I study classics for A-levels, so I get very excited. But on the topic of Phila um, I wanted to ask about that collaboration, obviously the performance was in her memory um, as she recently passed away, um, but what was it like collaborating with her? Obviously you're experienced in working with the visual art world, but how did it become identified that um, she would be the set designer and how did you kind of collaborate in this process?
0: So I've made like a list of people, a short list of people that I thought would be such a dream to work with. I tried to keep them people who were based in London <laughs> um, so that we could really like be back and forth together and work in the studio and so um she was probably, you know, top 2 on my top 2 on my list. I felt very very lucky that she was interested and available. I just love how her work is so it just asserts itself. There's no denying its presence and what it's trying to impart and evoke. And I just love that kind of boldness. She's so radical and so bold. And yeah, she's such a badass. And at the same time, when I met her, she was so warm and so delightful and thoughtful and slightly mischievous yeah like she would say she had these like naughty like little thoughts but they were also just pearls of wisdom like i love i just i think spending time with her was one of the biggest gifts of this process and it was devastating when she passed away very shocking and in in the middle of the process we got to enough of a place where we could build it but i do felt we really missed her in those last stages, I, I missed her deeply, she completely understood the direction where we were going and made something that like was completely in, in her language. I often felt like it reminded me of, yes, the amphitheater, like a Greek amphitheater that was eroded, but it also reminded me of the planet of the, like Le Petit France, the little prince, how he's on this like little moon. It was like a star and it felt absurdist also. It had this ancient place making, but it also made me feel like we were in potentially a dreamt up place where we had to witness how these people in this dreamt up place were going to deal with this tragedy. And so it also felt very freeing and not like oh my gosh we're like in the 70s and it's this thing it didn't stifle the potential for the place to be its own new environment. I definitely had a futuristic feel as well
2: I think with this kind of like I think I was talking about it like almost like lava kind of cascading down or it looked like seeping oozing kind of Goose. I'm not coming up with the best words for this now. Did you really give me an insight into like your conversations? What were the kind of things that you were discussing together with Philida when she was coming up with the ideas for this set?
0: The thing I said to her that is a priority for me is that the dancers aren't just like walking around an object. I really want them to be able to somehow be on it. It will feel very much like... It's a used part of the environment. It's embodied. She came up with a few things at first that would be very difficult for the dancers to move on or be on. And then when she came up with this, it actually originally was meant to hold the choir. And it was awesome because we had to put 36 people somewhere and a huge sculpture and somehow a a cast of 22 people. So it felt How are we going to put 36 people on stage and a huge sculpture and have enough room for a ballet? So if we can put the orchestra on it, that would be great. And then she passed away, and I felt that if we put 36 people on it, we wouldn't see it. We just wouldn't see it. They would be covered entirely. And I really wanted it to sort of stand out. So we found a different arrangement for the people. And then I had very little time to kind of choreograph on it. So we had to stay pretty simple, also for safety. What did she say? I wish I could remember it. It was so amazing. She was like, I wanted to feel like it's past its, you know, like yogurt when it's expired. That this way of living in this community Has gone way too far in the wrong direction for too long. There's something rotten, there's something lost, something that was lost. And so I think she wanted to make something that didn't feel like idyllic as like an amphitheater where people put on like their aspirations of music and poetry and hope. She wanted it to feel, yeah, like something was off and i loved that idea yeah she contributed not just to the set but she also talked a lot about the choreography i was originally using like a spandex in my is the fabric and she was like no no you have to use felt so we moved to felt and it was the best decision ever
2: yeah which obviously makes such a huge impact on the piece because of all this like kind of thwacking on the floor as well and the way that it moves that's amazing that she impacted as well the the choreography on such a
0: big scale. And she chose the soloist. I was working with many dancers at the time on the opening solo. I didn't have enough time at that point to like, be like, oh, it's this person. I was just like working on the choreography and kind of trying to build it out. And she was like, she's the chosen one. You know, I started noticing this one dancer more and she was totally right.
2: Philida chose the chosen one. One last question about the choreography before we move on to the restaging of the piece very soon. I wanted to ask, obviously we talked at the beginning that you did take a different route narratively to Nijinska, um, but I wanted to ask, if there was like movement-wise any influences from Nijinska or any research you did into Nijinska's version that influenced yours uh, because I felt like there was obviously not exactly the same but almost in the motivation of some kind of quirky awkward gestures interspersed with more kind of flowing and abandoned choreography in your version that felt like it heart back somewhat to this kind of stabbing uh, motion and awkward gestures in Nijinska's version. So was that something that did inform you? And yeah, maybe more generally just as well about the kind of aesthetic motivation behind the movement that you created?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I watched every version of Lenos that I could find. So I've seen, I mean, I think about seven different versions. I watched Nijinskas multiple, multiple times. And I have a little bit of a photographic memory. I Once I see a dance, big, big chunks of it stay in my head. And so I feel like I was playing her version in my head all the time, always. It was so, it's so minimalist. I think that's the thing that really affected me, that she was able to really, especially through these tableaus, create very striking, symbolic, minimal choices that had such huge impact and so I think that that was also something I was like how can I keep this simple and say the most as possible which was hard because my narrative was not a simple one the story like just sort of unfolded was was kind of a complicated one but I felt I yeah I felt I felt her present and I also just really admire her and I didn't want to be a a woman that made a piece (laughs) that just didn't at least try to stand up to both her and Stravinsky with respect.
2: Thank you so much for that. So as we've been building towards, you're returning to London soon to restage the piece in the V&A, as one of their V&A lates. Can you tell me, I mean, we talked a little bit before we started recording that you're not going to have that much time to set the piece in the space, but do you already know, and can you share with us where exactly it's going to be
0: set in the museum? It's in the Raphael room. And Mm -hmm. um, my understanding is that it's open to the public, but there's also maybe an area of that event that is maybe ticketed or, or held off. But I think it's open to the public. You know, I I actually don't have a lot of the information about it. (laughs) I know I have two hours to figure it out when I get there. I know that um, we are sort of in the round environment and that people can come and go as they please. So it's not sort of like sit down and watch it, you know, which I love. I do have a feeling that people, once music and dance gets started, they freeze and they feel like they have to just stand and watch it until it's done thankfully it's only going to be about a 10 minutes and so it will be repeated multiple times so it's i think a comfortable amount of time to stand yeah we'll we'll see how people respond I think it's really really important to to see movement in more spaces like I said earlier than the theater and so to me this is just a re- exciting opportunity to collaborate both with VNA and Chanel and English National Ballet hopefully it inspires these organizations and other people to just do more 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 of it and in you know more developed ways.
2: How is Chanel involved in the collaboration?
0: The exhibition is actually part of Chanel's exhibition there that's currently on, and she created a set design and costume for Ballet Russe. And so I think Chanel and Vianney thought it would be really wonderful to have a Ballet (laughs) Russe-ish moment Mm alongside the exhibition but instead of going you know straight to an original Ballet Russe work to see you know this new this new direction with the the score. It wasn't La that she did. I'm forgetting the, the name of the piece that she did but that I think is what inspired this dialogue and, and is bringing these dancers to the space.
2: Amazing. And will the the singers also be there and fill it as designs or is it a more stripped back version?
0: It's totally stripped, 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 stripped. They'll be wearing costumes, so it's not that stripped, but it's very minimal in terms of how we're inserting ourselves in the space. But nonetheless, you know, even though it's not like a full-on residency at the v and I think that The sections that I'm choosing are very much quieter moments, especially the grief of the mother. And I think it's going to be really interesting, especially now, everything that's happening for people to be near embodiment of deep feeling, of expressivity, of movements that are not what you would see at Starbucks or something that are movements of emotion and behavior. So... I still, even though it's a fast project, I think we can still have an an interesting and important impact.
2: Yeah, that's really beautiful. Thank you for that. I wanted to look a bit towards the future because we've done a lot of reflection, but I wondered if you could share any specific ambitions you have for the future, either for yourself or for Galim, which I know is fast approaching its 20 year anniversary. Um, so yeah, any things in mind or specific aims and ambitions you have for the future?
0: Yeah, um, so I'm trying to start a school. The name of the school is thanks to Najinska. from my research. She had for a few years, a school called the School of Movement. And I was just like, that's the name of a dance school that I believe in. So it's called the School of Movement. And it's a school where the idea is that movement is an exchange of wisdom and not a style that we need to become sort of like an expert in at age eight where you're learning ballet and you're learning jazz. And I think that it's an expression of creativity, artistry, personal authenticity. We already teach in this school professional and pre-professional dancers but I'm working towards making it a program for young movers and also people of all ages who are not professionally inclined as well as our kind of more professional program so it's kind of all-encompassing that's a big 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 project of mine that I'm very excited about and then I do have some other works that are a continuation of this belief that uh, dance needs to to grow into other spaces one of them is a public work that's about neighborhoods that kind of was inspired in the pandemic and what makes up a neighborhood what makes up home how do we see or identify these intangible things of a neighborhood and collaborating with people of that neighborhood to to build the work it's very co-collaborative it's not sort of like my piece it's a shared process and The other piece that I'm really working on that I'm excited about is an adaptation of a film for theatre that is, you know, not necessarily a dance piece. It's more of a theatrical work with movement and hopefully really great music, and that's on the horizon.
2: And then very finally, uh, as this is the Terpsichory podcast, we always ask at the end of our podcasts with our interviewees if they could meet any female dance practitioner from history or or living today who it might be and why I know we've talked about a lot of amazing women in this podcast already if you had to pick one or maybe a couple uh, who might they be
0: honestly I would love to talk to Nijinska I think maybe I'm just also responding to how the last two years have been of researching her and, and working on this piece but I do think that She's such an unsung hero who had such revolution in her body and her mind. I'm not sure everything about how she practiced it would fly today, but she never got a break, really. Never, never, for all that she poured into her into love and dedication towards the field and its evolution. So I think it would just be so much fun to sit down with her. Yeah, I would choose her.
2: Amazing. Thank you so, so much uh, for talking today. It was fascinating. I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, good luck for the performance in London. Yes,
0: thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this time together. Thank you.
1: I hope you enjoyed listening to the 21st episode of the Tepsikori podcast with the amazing Andrea Miller. If you'd like to find out more about Miller's work, why not follow her company on Instagram at Galim Dance Co. or check out her website at www.galim.org If you're based in London, also don't forget to head over to the Victoria and Albert Museum on Friday the 24th of November where English National Ballet will be performing excerpts from Miller's Les Nos Ascent Todays as part of their Dance Focus V&A Friday Late Event. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could subscribe and leave us a rating and a review, as it helps other people to find us. You can also follow the Terpsicle podcast on instagram at terpsichery underscore podcast or twitter at terpsichery underscore pod thanks so much again for listening to the terpsichery podcast with me emily may